0: This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Ukraine is becoming cold and dark as Russia continues to target critical infrastructure. Stepan Berko, lawyer and democracy advocate, gives us the latest from Kyiv and shares the stories from Ukraine that Canadians need to hear. Egyptologists may have found the most important discovery since King Tut's tomb. Archaeologist Dr. Jay Silverstein tells us if Cleopatra's tomb is finally within reach or just speculation of what it is, and are we close? What are the facts? We learn more about what it's like to explore inside ancient tombs. And are you okay with veggie meat and ostriches running free, running around, uh those two stories are unrelated, by the way. Uh the veggies are not running free and the ostrich meat was not part of the conversation. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast.
1: This is the Shift Podcast.
0: We are connecting to Kyiv, Ukraine, and one of our friends there, Stepan Berko is uh as a lawyer he's an advocate he's uh the the kind of guy that his job is to build and create the new legal system inside ukraine it was before the invasion of russia it continues to this day Stepan, how are you
2: hello shane Uh, i'm doing good
0: good well i'm glad to hear that and i'm glad to hear your voice we were a little unsure about electricity and um, the uh, cell networks and all those things to see if you can connect, whether on your internet or the mobility. Uh, It seems to be okay right now, so thank you very much for that. Um, With that in mind, some of the stories we've seen that, you know, 50% of electricity needs are not being met. Can you help us understand what you're going through in Kyiv, just when it comes to power and basic utilities at the moment?
2: Yeah, the last last, uh, rocket attack that we had on the 23rd, was uh, pretty harsh um, in, in many houses people don't have uh, electricity in, at my home yesterday we had no electricity whatsoever uh, and that means no water no heating um, and um, you know uh, street lights are off uh, yesterday uh, evening it, it looked uh, because we had a very th- thick uh, fog, it looked a bit apocalyptic, a bit wow. apocalyptic, uh, because cars uh, still, you know, running through the city, and um, no lights whatsoever. Um, yeah, uh, of course, people are nervous. This is probably the first time when uh, uh, the situation with, uh, with the with electricity is so there. Um, but uh, everyone hopes for better. So right now, at least we have uh, two or three hours, uh, two or three hours uh, of electricity promised by 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 city government. We'll mm-hmm. see. Uh, I hope that uh, in nearest day or two the situation will get better. And of course, uh, I would say the biggest challenge is also. Um, internet connectivity and and cell uh, uh, connection because when when, uh, power stations uh, those cell stations run out of uh, electricity um, the connection falls and uh, people have no uh, way to to know whether there is a um, air alert or not Um, fortunately radio still works so that's probably the the only way to uh, to to know
0: uh, Stepan Berko is in Kyiv, Ukraine. On? But yeah, I would...
3: And...
0: Sorry, go ahead there, bud. Continue. You just cut out for one second, so I was going to go on. You, please continue your thought. Did we lose him? Let's double-check that connection, please. Uh, Stepan Berko is in Kyiv, Ukraine. Some of the things that have happened in the last couple of days, there was another massive rocket attack, and um, their Kyiv has been um, without power, an entire night without power here Um in the last little bit. So we're going to check and see uh, if we can get this connection back. This is what's happened. So earlier in the week here on the shift, and we kind of knew this day was coming, right? That we would, um, that the electricity or the internet or the cell networks would start to get banged up and they would um, not be working quite the same way. So um, we're, we're calling him back right now, just so you know, the hardest part for me to hear out of that would be a couple of things, I guess, is that when the electricity goes out, and of course, I'm only imagining. You only have a little bit of time to charge your devices, uh, charge all of the battery packs, or whatever else you have. The other part would be um, water, the basics for food and stuff. But as soon as the water turns on, because the power comes back on and the water pumps work, we you would think you would be able to get um, you think you would be able to get as much water as you could into buckets or whatever, so you could make your dinners have a wash, shower, whatever it is it looks like. Stefan Berko, welcome back. Um, Is that what it's like when the power turns on? You just got to kind of store as much water and electricity as you can?
4: Yes. Uh, So people, I mean, we at my house, we bought some uh, uh, big bottles to to store some water. Uh, And uh, we we also bought some portable uh, gas uh, stoves. To, to cook food. Uh, we are, I mean, at, at my organization, we're lucky that we're having electricity at our, at our office 24-7, so at least we're able to work. But uh, I think uh, uh, I mean, the majority of people are not as lucky as us.
0: uh Berko is in Kiev, Ukraine. I have a couple of stories that I wanted to share with you, Stepan. Um, one is a really good news story. And one is uh, maybe not great news for Canada story. Now, this might not be surprising to you, but Canadians take a little bit off guard. Uh, Russia One, which is one of the state broadcasters in Russia, has taken one of our network reports here on the network that we're on, and they've started to use it as propaganda against Canada and it's actually one of our news reports. So we're going to play this for you so you can hear it too, and then I'll kind of get your thoughts. I'm assuming this is sort of standard fare of what you would see from Russian broadcasters, but has certainly raised Canadian eyebrows as global news exclusive about armoured vehicle manufacturing in Canada for Ukraine has had an impact on Ukraine being used as propaganda in Russia.
3: You might be surprised by the top story on Russia's most popular news program. We were... It's about Canada and its apparent hostility towards Russia. Presenter Olga Skabayeva accuses Canada of fueling the war in Ukraine, which she sarcastically calls an international crisis. She then airs a translated portion of a global news report on Canadian-built armored personnel carriers making a difference in Ukraine. Our report first aired on the new reality without the aggressive rock music or the overt political spin applied by Russia's propaganda machine.
1: That's a completely torqued view of the truth. And if Russia were to pull out, as it should, a sovereign country can continue to exist. If Ukraine were to stop fighting, Ukraine would cease to exist. And that's the reality.
3: Roman Shimonov is the CEO of Rochelle, which has so far sent over 100 of its senator vehicles to Ukraine. Eight were bought by Canada, the rest by NATO and European allies. In our story, Shimonov says he'd pop open a bottle of champagne when Putin lost the war. Russiawan Skabayeva told her viewers he had a drinking problem. Because uh, I guess in many Russian minds, uh, the best way to uh, make a person, to show him negative ways to associate him with the alcohol. The Kremlin controls Russian state TV, using misinformation to further the narrative that its invasion was just. Creating enemies where none exists is a tactic Vladimir Putin has used for decades. It fits the Kremlin narratives to suggest that Canada is working with these Ukrainian warmongers, uh, Ukrainians who have been identified by Russian state media as being um, you know, neo-Nazis, um, Satanists, um, that they're uh, constantly looking for ways, along with NATO, uh, to attack uh, Russia. Shimonov says it's important they not lose sight of who created the propaganda in the first place. Mike Trillet, Global News, Toronto.
0: I'm Shane Hewitt. It's the chef. Stephen Berko joins us from Kiev, Ukraine. Probably nothing new for you there, stephen if uh, we're the bad guys, because we're supporting Ukraine and giving you guys armored vehicles, then I'll take that title all day. But it does lead to that thing that you've always told us about that that you know Russia will do whatever it takes to twist the story and feed their narrative. This can't this must be same old, same old news for you,
4: of course uh, they they desperately trying are trying to convince their population that. Uh, they're fighting against not Ukraine but NATO, and uh, they 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 use these stories like this to show that um, they uh, they are they they are basically like fighting against the whole, whole the whole world. The, on one hand, this they they think that this will boost the the morale and, and the will boost the the, um, the will of people, of r- Russian citizens to join their army. But on the other hand, they're also trying to to use these stories to influence some um, some people in the West to say that your governments are fueling the war. And uh, of course, Russian TV, they have a uh, possibility to broadcast in some European countries. Uh, so... They, they're using these stories to 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 convince uh, um, Western societies that they're fueling the war. And the only way to stop these atrocities uh, is to stop supplying Ukraine with uh, any equipment and any help.
0: Yeah, which is obviously something that's not going to change. So we will continue to do that, I'm very sure. Um, now, Stefan, you, when you got into a career in law, motivated by you know a study of the law the future of ukraine and the particular path inside the law that you've chosen moments like this when you hear stories like this that they literally take the reporter who's celebrating with champagne make him a drunk which i find a little ironic look up the history of boris yeltsin but the um (laughs) the um but the point is is that this, this, these kind of moments, little moments like this, do they solidify your decisions to study the law and work the law for your home country of Ukraine? Um, I would say that these harsh
4: circumstances, they convince me and people that I'm working with to continue what we're doing because, uh, this is the exact reason why Russia uh, invaded Ukraine, because we were drifting to, towards democracy and uh, Western world, and they, this was something they could not uh, stand. And uh, the reforms uh, the, in the sphere of justice and rule of law that we are working on, they, they are crucial, because as soon as people uh, in Ukraine Uh, any person understands that uh, he or she has rights, and he or she has instruments to protect these rights. Uh, And from that exact moment, this person becomes a citizen and a member of civil society. And this is something that uh, Russia uh, lacks, and uh, they either... and they understand that fighting civil society that is uh, ready to, uh, knows what they're fighting for and uh, have something to sacrifice is really hard. And uh, that, that makes me more motivated to continue work we're doing right now. For example, I mean, you can imagine we have these blackouts, we have these missile attacks. And at the same time, right now, the most comprehensive judicial reform is still going on in Ukraine. So th- th- this might look uh, like a paradox, uh, because uh, one could uh, may think that uh, in such uh, circumstances of uh, uh, you know security threats, people must think uh, and, and work primarily and only on on, uh, um, on military support and stuff. But we understand that if we stop. Uh, our path to democracy and are strengthening our institutional capabilities as a a democratic society. This will uh, be the exact thing that Putin and Russia uh, and Russians want, stopping us uh, on the path to um, a civilized society and a civilized state.
0: Stepan Berko is in Kiev, Ukraine. Can I give you a good news story, bud? Because I have a, it's a very Canadian, very Ukrainian good news story. Can I play that for you?
4: Yes, yes. Go ahead. Okay.
0: A little bit of good news here. So there is uh, Ukrainian hockey players, of course. Um, Playing hockey has become a real distraction from daily devastation that, you know, Stepan's talking about, rocket attacks and so on. International hockey community is coming together to give Ukrainian national hockey team a chance to compete in Western Canada ahead of a major tournament.
2: It's kind of a escape for me because, like hockey, it's probably one of the best things in my life.
1: For 18-year-old Sava Serduke, playing the game he loves means navigating war-torn Kyiv and skating in facilities that don't always have power.
4: My team Sokil has
2: practices almost every day and. We don't have electricity sometimes, and like water, and like stuff like that. Like when I come into practices every morning, I feel like I'm in the safe place Uh, with my friends.
1: The determination of these athletes is the driving inspiration behind the Hockey Can't Stop Tour. The initiative will see the Ukrainian national under 25 team travel to Western Canada next month to face off against four university hockey teams. Beyond raising awareness, the matches will help the Ukrainians prepare to compete at the Winter University Games in Lake Placid this January. The Dinos and the Ukrainian national team will face off at Father David Bauer on January 2nd. Ticket sales will support the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, as well as Save Ukrainian Hockey Dream, a charity aiming to rebuild facilities and support players and coaches.
3: We're expecting to sell this place out.
1: The 1,500-seat arena should be jam-packed, especially considering Alberta is home to one of the largest Ukrainian expat populations in Canada.
3: We have a pretty substantial
0: Ukrainian population on campus. We've been in touch with the Ukrainian Student Society already, and they've hosted um, a couple of, of events already. President Zelensky was uh, made an address and
5: took some questions from University of Calgary students back in the fall.
1: And the Dinos say they're honored to help the team prepare for the tournament and preserve the future of the sport in Ukraine do
5: you
3: hear how resilient they've been and how focused they are to keep going and fighting but also you know to keep minor hockey going keep you know this opportunity going for their players so you know they're they're true fighters and warriors it's a really good opportunity for us to show us uh, Ukraine hockey is still alive Ukraine hockey has a future
1: Kami Kepke global sports. In Kyiv, Ukraine,
0: Stephen Berko joins me. I'm Shane Hewitt. There you go, bud. A little bit of uh, Canada-Ukrainian love happening quietly in the background. How does that sound for you?
4: Yeah, thank you, Shane, for playing this report for me because it's uh, it gives me a feeling of some uh, um, warmness, you know. When, um, when I hear that Canadians found... Uh, um, a, a very creative way, way to support uh, Ukrainians. Uh, this this makes me feel that uh, we um, we all, you know, societies, uh, Western societies and Ukrainian society, who who strive to 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 to, to win this war together. We have strength only in some conventional uh, instruments and capabilities, but also in these small. Um, acts of uh, support, moral support and that that makes me uh, feel happy because that means that we are human and we understand what is to be human and that's why we will win
0: sometimes the simplest connections are the best of all the connections Stephen Berko, I appreciate you Um, I love to hear your voice you're so generous with your time with us Um, anything else that we should know as Canadians here? It's been a little bit since we've had a conversation in a week or so, what would you like Canadians to know as we wrap up?
4: I I want all of you to, to know that despite anything, uh, Ukrainians are, uh, motivated to, to withstand this winter and to, 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 to win this war. Um, a good way to, uh, feel how we live right now would be to have uh, one evening supper with your family without electricity just with candles that would uh, help you uh, get the atmosphere and uh, i think uh, that would also help us to feel that we all we're all together and we will make it through
0: i think we can take that on thank you so much brother it's great to hear your voice
4: thank you shane and uh all best to you
1: all This is the Shift podcast. And joining us now
0: all the way across the Atlantic uh, is Dr. J. Elliot Silverstein. Now uh, Dr. J which I got to call him Dr. Jay, because I just think that's cool. Like, you got a cool name, Jay. Um, the uh, You are an Egyptologist, an archaeologist, and um, you really like old things, I guess. That's kind of the way it goes. Before we get started, though, I got to compliment your beard, sir. That is a handsome beard. As a beard-loving gentleman, I got to tell you, yeah, you look good. You keep that for me. Um, Hollywood Cleopatra, real-life Cleopatra, I mean, how cool is it to think that it's possible that you guys have found these stories of the real deal here? This must get you excited.
5: Yeah, I, you know, for me, there's nothing more exciting than bringing to life the, the the stories of history, you know, through the physical evidence that we find in archaeology.
0: Now, what does that look so, like for you when when you when you guys get together? I'm going to ask, like, okay, so here's Dr. Silverstein and his other archaeology doctor, doctor friends. And this is when word starts to get out or someone finds some evidence somewhere. And you know, I I imagine it a little bit kind of like a needle in a haystack, like everyone's kind of searching and someone's like, Oh, and they're like, Hey, Dr. Silverstein, what do you think of this? And you're like, Oh, and then everybody gets a little bit excited (laughs) and then it grows and grows. How does it happen?
5: Well, you know, there's a mixture. when you when someone's announcing something that they think they're gonna find, versus something that something that they found, there, there can be a difference. When I when I see something that someone found, like like the um, recent tombs in Saqqara, it that's incredible. When I hear about how we're gonna find the tomb of Alexander the Great or the tomb of Cleopatra, then I tend to be a little bit skeptical, and I really want to go through the evidence leading us to that.
0: So these claims about these uh, ruined cities and these, these hallways and these tombs, where do we land on this? Because aside from the fact that I find these photos to be particularly haunting, imagining that nobody's been in these places for a really long time, uh, where are we at on the land of finding actual evidence or speculating that what they might have found some stuff? Where, where do we land on that scale right now?
5: I think we're more on the speculation point okay. right now. The, the site where um, Kathleen Martinez is working right now, uh, Taposiris Magna, is an incredible site, and and you know there, there, there's no exaggerating how important the site was. But that said, there's also no specific leads to say that Cleopatra's buried there.
0: Right. So why would they assume that that could so, be the case? Is it because it's all new, or are there some storylines that may sort of collaborate with what's being found?
5: Well, there's been 100 years of excavation going on there. Really? And some of the things that are kind of presented as new were actually you know, the Polish mission that was there and the Hungarian mission that were there had talked about the Temple of Isis, the name Tapasiris uh, Magnet, and, and the older name of Abusir, tells us that there is a temple of Osiris. If you have a temple of Osiris, you have a, a temple also of his wife, Isis. right. So um, so some of the stuff isn't isn't all that new. but the evidence that she's uncovering that you know the, that's that's building our knowledge of Taposiris Magna is really fantastic. But it doesn't necessarily say that Cleopatra's tomb is going to be there
0: one of the reasons so the that,
5: tunnel that they found if,
0: yeah keep oh. going sorry I thought you were done go ahead
5: oh yeah no the tunnel that they found you know is, is 1500 meters long according to the reports um, which is fantastic it, it, it's not unusual for those sort of tunnels to be found under archaeological sites when that length is is sensational but also a long tunnel like that, is not something you would necessarily expect to be associated with a tomb. That it's more like a, you know, passageway or a sewer right. or uh, an aqueduct.
0: A sewer. That's what it would work for me. If I became an archaeologist, yeah. I'd be like, you. Guess what I found? I found a sewer. That's the way. That's my luck, right there. That's what you just talked about.
5: <laughs> oh, that's so good. Well, you know, most of archaeology is looking at old garbage.
0: Right. I guess. <laughs> it's a thing. Well, one of the things, speaking of go out garbage, I guess it's not garbage, but they have found things and there is some speculation about some coins that they're associated at least with likeness of these people.
5: Oh yeah, no, the coins of Cleopatra are, are, are wonderful and you know, but they're not uncommon throughout Egypt from that time period, it, oh, okay. it was, you know, any more than finding a penny or a, you know, a, you know, a five pence piece or something, you know. Um, Nowadays, or, or someone has a, a hoard of coins that they, they you know, you put in a, in a box or in a jar, and and that is found, you know, a thousand years later by an archaeologist. Yeah, that's that's very informative. It's very interesting, but doesn't mean that. You know, that doesn't mean if, if it's an American penny with Abraham Lincoln, it doesn't mean that Abraham Lincoln's buried there. <laughs> I guess
0: that's a very, very good point, right? So let's talk a little bit about this engineering thing because I'm curious when you archaeologists have to sort of stave off the engineer nerds who want to come see this stuff because the photos of this particular one looks like a vertical shaft was going down and then they found tunnels underground, horizontal tunnels. Now that leads me to believe that um, you know, a little bit of luck and and digging in different directions finds different things. I'm going to assume that the uh, LED lights that are in the hallway were installed after the fact. Um, but <laughs> the engineering around it, I mean, there's the tops of the tunnels. They're shaped, you know, obviously in a fashion to protect collapse and all these different things going on. Does that fall into your purview of the archaeology part of how the heck did they do this? Uh, And do do those engineering folks try to step in on your territory to to get a look at how these old, old, old tunnels are still standing?
5: Well, one thing is archaeology is very collaborative. Humanity is so complex that none of us have the specialized knowledge, whether it's engineering technology or history or languages, to, to solve all the questions, to answer all the questions about the things that we find, so we're, we're always collaborating with other experts. So, I, I mean, I would invite engineers any time to look at anything I found. So that, that said, also we know that, particularly in the Ptolemaic period, with the Library of Alexandria and the, the this, this consolidation of modern science really going on at the at Alexandria. That engineering was was amazing during that time period. The hydraulic engineering, the construction—you know—we have two of the great wonders of the world at Alexandria: the library and the and the lighthouse. So, 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 yeah, that type of engineering doesn't surprise me. And and certainly, I would want to see—you know—any uh, experts who who could come in who specialize in in ancient architecture uh, would be you know, a welcome addition to understanding what's going on there.
0: This one particular tunnel that that's noted here. Uh, it says in one of the photos, it says this tunnel resembles another older tunnel from ancient Greece that was used to transport water. Is that a nice way of saying they found a sewer?
5: Yeah. Or an aqueduct is, yeah. is, is, a, aqueduct you know, is a little, little better than a sewer, yeah. <laughs> a storm drain versus an aqueduct that brings water to you. But yeah, it's crazy uh, to think though. Yeah. You know? So so it wouldn't surprise me if it, if it was an aqueduct.
0: What's your um, What's your Tapisier's favorite thing? Magnus. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, sorry, we have a bit of a delay on the connection. I don't mean to step on you there. Continue your thought, and my next yeah. question is going to be what your favorite part of this is. So finish your thought, please.
5: Okay, Magnus, you know, Magna is you know, located in a really uh, important location because it connects all the resources of um, Lake Mariotis and the Nile Delta to the Mediterranean, and this was a uh, you know the The central point for connecting all the Mediterranean countries, you know, Southern Europe, North Africa, also the Middle East, Near East, Asia, and Africa, we're all coming together in Alexandria and and Taposiris Magna right there as well. Hmm. It's fascinating to me.
0: What's your, favorite, uh, what's your favorite part of this? I mean, you become an archaeologist. It's not like you have a very narrow look at uh, the thousands and thousands of years of history, right? So like when, when you, now, I mean, you've been at this for a little bit now. So what, okay, let's, let me spin it this way. For anybody who's thinking of a, a young person who's listening to the podcast or thinking of a career thing, why, what is it about archaeology for you? Based on this lens of this possibility of Cleopatra, you know, what, what really is the best part?
5: for me, what what has drawn me is solving mysteries. I, I was a police officer before I went into archaeology, and I loved solving a crime. You know, I, I worked for the U.S. military searching for missing soldiers from past wars, and I worked all around the world trying to solve the mystery of mias. Oh, at interesting. the same time, you know, I can, built my career in uh, Mexico and Guatemala, and then in two thousand and seven came to Egypt. So for me, it's, it's, it's really the discovery and the answering questions.
0: What's the uh, biggest question about this that's still missing that, that we need to know? Is it Cleopatra? Is she the biggest question mark?
5: Well, yeah, she remains a big question mark. You know, the two big discoveries we would love to see in Egypt would be Cleopatra's tomb and Alexander the Great's tomb. Um, and they're both very elusive. Both probably in Alexandria, maybe underwater now. Right. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so so yeah, those. But but I, I got to say, you know, all across Egypt, there are hundreds of archaeologists working from from Egypt and from uh, you know Dominican Republic, from from all over the world, and everyone is actually making pretty significant discoveries every mm-hmm. year. You know, discoveries that don't get as much press because it's not Cleopatra, right? but, but they do rewrite the history of the world and the history of Egypt.
0: That's cool. Okay. So here's what I imagine it's like, and I mean this in a good spirit when I say it, when you watch <laughs> the TV show storage wars, I feel like that's what it's like when you open up a tomb. Cause when they open up those storage lockers, you never really know what's inside. right? And you get a bunch of people that they invest yeah. their whole careers into these tombs. They're like, this is the thing. And you're going to open it up. Kind of like the guy who's like paid $1,000 for the locker. And he's hoping there's that one rare collectible inside that he can make money on. And then you open up the storage locker. And it's like the locker. And it's like, burr, burr, burr. there's nothing in it. But then you have these people that invested <laughs> their whole lives into these tombs. And then they open the door. And they're like, "There's it's a, it's a closet. Like, there's nothing, like well, there's nothing in here. There's nothing good. Is that kind of what it's like?
5: there's an aspect of that and that's why we we fall back on science (laughs) when (laughs) when we don't get the sensational discovery you know we we look at the pollen counts or we look at the (laughs) uh, you know architectural aspects or you know how rooms are connected um, you know or changes in ceramic style but but yeah but all of us I think deep down want to make that big discovery we want to find that something that's going to, instead of moving us incrementally forward in history, that's going to really give us something that's uh, going to rewrite a piece of history, that's going to change things, that's going to look really good on National Geographic. Right.
0: Well, and hey, payday's all right, too. I mean, you do work hard, so why not? This is so fascinating. Um, uh, well, I guess as we discover more, we want to learn more. We find this fascinating here on the shift. Our audience shares with us the shift ads all the time when we have, uh, you know, experts like you that share these stories. I think it really challenges the Hollywood convention and allows us to look at this from that. That human perspective. I mean, I kind of always think of it like rings on a tree. When they count rings on a tree to see how old it is. I mean, when you look at the erosion and the rock and all the things, kind of like rings on a tree. That to me, that stuff's really cool and really exciting.
5: It, it is, and 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 that's a good analogy. And that, in fact, that's even an aspect of archaeology we yeah. call it dendrochronology. It's, it's aging things by rings on trees. Yeah. Oh, cool. But but yeah, a, a, an ancient city is like a tree in that it's got layers and layers piled up as people have lived over there for thousands of years, and we want to understand what happened to those people, you know, how they lived, how they died, why they failed. I think one of the biggest lessons from archaeology is how these ancient civilizations failed, because it allows us to reflect that our civilization can fail if we allow it to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the ancient civilizations who did fail remind us of that fact.
0: Wow. That's a good thing to finish with right there. Dr. Jay Silverstein joins us, Egyptologist, archaeologist, uh, that has a much more uh, interesting history than just looking at rocks and old things. We've learned a lot. So, Jay, I'd love it if you came back. And, uh, you know, I want to learn more about this, uh, some specifics of certain things that have been found that you've found that you've been a part of and uh, some of those oldest stories, too, of your previous life. This is fascinating. Thank you for being so generous with your time, sir.
5: Yeah, anytime. It's a real pleasure. This is the
0: Shift Podcast. Are you okay with veggie meat? Is that a thing? Veggie
6: meat. Uh, I hated the old one when I was a kid. I feel like it's not veggie meat. I think it's just veggies. Look. It it is just veggies, but it's veggie meat, so it's marketable to people who wish they could eat meat but choose not to. Right? That's why they use that label, which if I'm they fine. Wish with.
0: they could, but choose not to. That doesn't mean they wish they could. It means they they're not, so they or they just they choose
6: not to. But the convenience of just meat on it, it just makes sense from a, like a marketing standpoint that it's just for most people, right? Um, that like vegans still buy vegan hot dogs, right? It, they don't have a problem with the idea of a hot dog. They have a problem with what's inside the hot dog. But veggie meat has come a long way because well, I remember I was in the UK, my only trip abroad. I went and had a veggie burger, and it was the most disgusting thing I had ever had in my life. That was in yeah. 2010. And now, probably every other time I go to a I get a Beyond Meat burger because I think they taste really good. It's come a but long way. But why don't they
0: just... Have a hey, by the way, here is a carrot and potato beet pulp with some beans protein patty because that doesn't sound
6: good. You want to, if you were starting a company, should... would you market it as
0: that? No, but why do you make meat sound good for a vegetarian or a vegan? They already don't like it. So, but why would they buy beyond meat when they've taken not only a stand against eating meat but killing the mosquitoes? Like, that's the thing. I feel like to your marketing point, they're marketing to the wrong person. They should market it as, aren't you glad we like you and we agree with you? That meat's terrible? Here's a protein patty patty. Well, it's also worth noting
6: that it's not – every restaurant, uh, like Burger King has the Impossible Whopper and A&W has the Beyond Burger, Beyond Burger, mm-hmm. Right. There's no meat, it's not the impossible meat burger, it's the impossible burger. They try to leave that meat out. They don't market as much. But if you go and buy the patties, which you can do from the grocery store, they leave that on there. I think it's also just this idea that right now, it's changed a lot from just, uh, it's not just people who decide to be vegetarian or vegan. It's also the uh, alternative if you don't want, if you want to have something that's a little bit better, not much, but a little bit better for your heart and better for the environment, there's an alternative than red meat that kind of tastes mm-hmm. like it. I think they're also trying to play into that.
0: And yeah, not necessarily better for the environment. Um, the, uh, the impact of some of the vegetable growth impacts the environment. There's been really great research done on that. But I have a question then for you. Okay. Where do they put them in the frozen food aisle? With the frozen burgers or with the frozen vegetables?
6: they put it in the, with the frozen
0: burgers and frozen it, meat. See? Put them with the frozen vegetables. These people don't want they they're already like I hate I love the cows, love the cows, don't eat the cows or whatever, right? Like so why send them to the burger section? We've got this all wrong. It's backwards. Put them in the veggie section. Frozen veggies. There's you want frozen peas protein patty. I don't know. Anyway, I digress. There's a much better story than this one to share with you. It seems people who hate veggie meat really hate veggie meat. And I don't even hate it. I just think that they've got it all backwards for what they call it and what they try to sell it as. Some people even take pride in the fact that they hate veggie meat. Kind of like the only people who tell you they're vegetarians are vegetarians. Yeah. Um, In the UK, Jeremy Vine Show invited people to consider whether a vegan sausage should be called something else. Keeping the word sausage for meat products. See? They challenged self-proclaimed sausage buddy king, uh, Mike Perry, to identify which sandwich contained vegan burgers, excuse me, vegan bangers. And if you don't know bangers, that's a sausage. So which of these sandwiches had vegan bangers in it? And this is how this went. It is absolutely obvious to me. (laughs) This first one is the
3: false sausage, okay? (laughs) Right. That's not real sausage. That is... Cardboard. (laughs) The second one is clearly the real sausage. I could taste the meat in it. Excuse me. It was luscious and lovely. Tasted a bit like the one I had this morning. (laughs) This is the winner.
1: Okay. Very interesting. What do you think? Do you think he's got it right? I mean, he's, he's
3: a—he is the expert okay. on
1: sausages, so I suspect he's probably got it right. I'm going to well, it's—it's a—it's certainly, Mike. You did it with great conviction. Are you right? Is Mike right? Has he correctly identified the meat sausage? The answer is that the meat sausage sandwich is actually down here, Mike. Mm-hmm. You've just eaten two vegan sandwiches. Oh! <laughs> So you are, I think. There we are. I'll keep, and you can have your, you can have a meat sausage. One you. you. I think, are a vegan in disguise. Not at all.
0: <laughs> okay. See now, first of all, that's very funny. But I don't think he has me. I, I don't think he has um, egg on his face, if you will. Because in the question, they said which one is sausage, which is the banger. They say which one. So the question is misleading. Because oh, they yeah, imply the, that yeah. one of the two is. So he compares the two. I think it's a human thing.
6: It, it is. But I think part of the reason why he's got a little bit of egg on his face is he how well he describes the first one. This tastes like meat. It tastes like the one I had for breakfast. It was perfect. Yeah. The other one was cardboard mm-hmm. terrible. But they were both plant-based meat. So mm-hmm. that is for at least for me. Cause if he said, yeah, they're both like pretty okay. They're this one tastes like cardboard and this one just doesn't taste that all that great. But this one I think is the most meat like. I think that's, but where it's
0: unfair. It's unfair because if it they said, to is him, unfair. Hey, yeah. hey, Mr. Buddy King, um are these meat? Are one of these sauce sandwiches meat? The answer might not have been the same. Now, that being said, to your point, Ryan, I think that if you're going to call yourself an expert and so lovingly um, and confidently and, frankly, maybe a little egotistically claim that mm-hmm. this one is amazing, just like my other sandwich, well, you better nail it, brother. Yeah. But I think I think he was wildly misled, though, right? That's the thing. The answer is only as good as the question. I think the poor fellow was tricked. I think this is... um. I, 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 I think this one's a little bit unfair. Okay, so it's clearly gone viral because that's what happens as everybody judges. But that being said, how d- he obviously made this big proclamation that one was so good. How did he handle it when he found out?
5: What, a, what an underhanded, <laughs> downright rotten
3: trick <laughs> to put on a man whose reputation now is the great sausage butty
1: king. <laughs> what, how do you feel that mis- mistake was made, though? I mean, you, you, well, you've tasted sausage, right? All I can say is that that's
3: cardboard and that's sort of almost cardboard. <laughs> almost <laughs> no.
0: cardboard. Wow. I think that's terrible of him to now all of a sudden shoot down the second one.
6: Exactly. Exactly. As he shoots it down. So, but he's also trying to protect his reputation because he's very vocal on Twitter about how bad, you know, the vegan diet is, which I would never go vegan vegetarian, maybe but vegan. No, but the, you know, he's really pumping the tires and then goes back. So I think he loses some points with me on that one. I do agree with you though, as entertaining as I found this, I do agree that he was definitely misled, but uh, he probably could have handled it with a little bit more professionalism, you know,
0: spun it a little bit on him. I, I agree with you 100%, but here's the thing. Um, if you truly want to find out, you can't set someone up for failure. You have to give them either the comparison or the sandwiches and say, are these meat sandwiches? Like, I think they stay completely blindsided them and set them up for failure. I mean, I I mean, I mean, can't believe, if you if I did that to you, on the show where I literally set you up for failure and tricked you, you would never trust me again. Yeah. It's terrible. Live TV, yeah. man. On national live TV. like It, is, yeah. it was a big thing. The so there's a lot came. wrong with that in my mind. There's a lot wrong with that. Circle of trust, man. But that being said, uh, he embraced it. And uh, frankly, his ego got a little out of hand and it caught him. So yeah, maybe. Um, maybe not such an expert after all, if you can't distinguish between the two to the point. But... Maybe that's what you're out to get that answer, but th- this matters. Cause when you do like polling questions, another one in politics, we get these all the time, right? 73% of Canadians think the sky is blue. It all, um, it's all the polling is only as good as the question you get asked. So there you go. Um, there is a great meme that I saw today. It was on one of my Instagram, you know, dad stuff, things that I follow. And someone had taken, um, sausage full on sausages and mm-hmm. cut them into, yeah. like, an oval, like a like a chain link. You know, like how a chain link would look oh, like an oval yeah. with a hole yeah, in the middle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they cut a bunch of sausages to look like that with a hole in the middle and then put them all together like chain links yeah. and on a big, like, foot-long baguette-style subway kind of sub-sandwich, like a big, long one, and they called it Sausage Link Sandwich. It was really cute. <laughs> yeah.
6: Well done. Well done. I That's like, like that. how you see in a... In a butcher shop, when they're just like hanging from the ceiling,
0: yeah, it was like that. Mm. Except this looked like a chain. Are yes. you okay with since we talk about meat all the time here? <laughs> street meat, you oh. know, street meat yeah. is, is more suspect to not be meat than the veggie burgers are. This is true. I agree with you. However,
6: I love street meat. I know you're probably confused if you just getting used to me on the radio here as i was just saying i enjoy the veggie meat i also love the disgusting salty greasy food that you find on the corner at 3 a.m after you leave the bar that is special like a street there's one in vancouver that is across from the london drugs on i believe it's robson street i might be wrong or maybe granville and that was basically my entire diet when i lived in vancouver Were those hot dogs coming home from working at hmv and that is a sacred spot i love a good street meat
0: have you ever had a street side taco in mexico from a street vendor
6: i've never been anywhere warm in my life but i would i would love mm, i'd love to try but i would definitely be like no. no, no, he's shaking No, head. Yeah, See, no. I
0: know, I know that you've never tried it just because of the fact that you actually answered the question, because here's why. If you've ever tried it, you probably like get sick right now. Never trust street vendors in other countries ever because you never know what's in it. You got to get used to all the cuisine first. Then you go and learn what the street vendors are. By the way, that's a good just point. a tip. Yeah. Uh, it's not as uh, stable as the old Hawkeye, a uh, hot dog guy outside the bar. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I got to tell you, is there anything better than a slice of pizza or a a little sausage on a bun after being at the bar? Nay, nay, my friends. I, I agree with Ryan. That is the best of all the things. But what about the vendors? Do they lay claim to territory? For example, that's my wiener corner. Do they battle out for meat supremacy? The answer is, turns out, street vendors, yes. Why, yes, they do.
1: An apparent turf war between competing hot dog vendors led to a stabbing over the weekend.
0: Oh, goodness. Witnesses say hot dog vendors from Los Angeles were set up in areas where San Diego hot dog vendors typically sell food. A physical fight over territory ensued involving about a dozen people.
1: Saturday night, vendors set up to feed hungry concert goers exiting Petco Park. Witnesses say hot dog vendors from Los Angeles were set up in areas where San Diego hot dog vendors typically sling food. And a physical altercation of territory ensued involving about a dozen people. A man was stabbed in the back. San Diego police used pepper spray to disperse the rowdy crowd. 21-year-old hot dog vendor Yoni Yanis was arrested. All vendors are required to obtain a permit to sell food on city sidewalks. And in June, a new ordinance went into effect with code enforcement being tasked to enforce the rules. Something Michael Trimble with the Gaslamp Quarter Association says is not happening.
5: I don't think any of the ones in the Gaslamp Quarter have their licenses or their health permits. They have open flame. They're, they're, they're not uh, following the rules. What's the point of uh, having an ordinance if you don't have any way to enforce it?
0: That report's from 7 San Diego. Street vending has been limited in some areas and now is banned because of the gas lamp quarters fight. As of last weekend, San Diego Police Department is taking over enforcement efforts. I feel like this is an opportunity, though, Ryan O'Donnell. It's like oh. Sons of Anarchy, hot dog edition.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it makes sense when you think about it, though, right? Like, they lay claim. I've always thought about, you know, you go to a like a farmer's market and there's four food trucks that are all lined up against each other and they all Mm. see each other going to, you know, the different restaurants and they're bringing in customers and all that. And, you know, a little bit of tension there, but a full on brawl over territory, it's ridiculous, but it makes total sense. And could there be a sons of anarchy spinoff? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sons of trying to think of a food pun. Mail it in Friday is striking me. I know. Uh, Sons of Turkey. Sons of
0: Turkey. Sons turkey of and turkey, <laughs> turkey wieners. nap we're failing. Are you okay? Wait, ostrich wieners. Are you okay with ostriches? Ostriches. Scary. Fluffy. They're Scary. They're
6: weird. They're fluffy. Big. They're kind of fun to, you know, appreciate out of this from world. a distance. Yeah. yeah they're very. Yeah. Alien in nature, I'd say. They're just weird. I like that. We don't have to deal with them on a daily basis in Canada. It's just not a Canadian thing to deal with an ostrich. Well,
0: turns out it is, in fact.
6: Oh, ostriches are,
0: are a, um, uh, you know, they're, they're weird, right? There's some really great Instagrams and TikToks that are, you know, from ostrich farmers and the strange behavior of the ostriches. And it turns right. out that ostriches are big, tall, and fast, uh, and not from Canada, except when they're in Canada. RCMP in Tabor, Alberta, home of the famous Tabor corn. We're tracking some ostriches that were on the loose this week.
2: Oh my gosh! This is the first time I've ever seen this.
0: Now, what could that possibly be? Well, Jordan White captured a video. I'll try to describe it for you. Tabor Police and RCMP were helping gather about twenty ostriches that escaped 20. their enclosure. Twenty. It's a lot Ooh. of bird. A lot. In a post on Facebook, the Tabor Police Service said the birds made their way out of town and created traffic hazards. Oh, did they ever. Police officers and RCMP members were able to confine most of the ostriches so the owner could safely bring them home. Here, ostrich. Come on. uh, Tabor Vox Hall, RCMPs started fielding calls about the ostriches on the highway, 36, about 8 a.m. At one point, an owner was seen riding in an RCMP vehicle, reaching out the window of the RCMP pickup truck and grabbing the ostrich by the neck. Now, it looked not very pleasant, but it is the ostrich farmer, in all fairness, and there was an ostrich on the loose in the city. I really don't feel bad for the ostrich. It fell down, caught away. The technique that the owner in the passenger seat is displaying in the video is the instructed manner to capture an ostrich. Didn't know that was a book we should read. Oh, yeah. Um, By about noon, though, a couple of the ostriches have been captured. They continue to help uh, track down the remaining birds. One... Was hit and killed. So, no. Yeah.
6: That's a big That's mess. That's a dent, eh? That's a dent
0: and feathers and What a and, good oh. story, though, right? Oh, man, oh, what happened yeah. to your car? <laughs> ran over <laughs> an, an ostrich. ostrich. <laughs> like, it's I think you, I don't even beer. think you fix your hood. I think what you do is you put it up for sale and charge extra and say you can own the car that ran over an ostrich.
6: Keep the skull as a hood ornament. That would be badass. That'd be like some Mad Max stuff.
0: Now, that being said, ostrich burgers. Solution for you for all the earlier conversations? Absolutely. I don't know if you ever had ostrich meat. It's very good. Is it? Well, oh, I have not Kingst- had it. Kingston, Ontario, apparently was the place that I had such fine dining. Uh,
1: oh, okay. It's true. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast.
0: Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.